At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast, your channel to launch AI products, discover tech trends, and augment humans. Today on the show, I'm bringing our guest, Stephen Miller, who's the co-founder and senior vice president of engineering at Fusion, a Cox Automotives company. Stephen has worked in the industry with 2D and 3D data, computer vision, deep learning, and as part of the next wave of artificial intelligence. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. To start out, if you can share with our audience, let's take a step back. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what got you to become the founder of Fusion and then now part of Cox Automotives? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started in robotics at UC Berkeley when I was an undergrad back in 2010. And we were working in this lab that had this vision of automating mundane tasks, basically having robots do things that humans wouldn't want to do. The two key things we worked on were uh, surgical robotics, so having a robot tie sutures, and personal robotics, so having a robot that would fold laundry, put it in the washing machine, put it in the dryer. And that was really, really fun, especially as an undergrad, to explore all that. But what we kept butting our heads against was it was relatively easy to make a robot move in the way that we wanted, you know, learn how to do a folding motion. It was very hard to make a robot understand the world that it was moving around in, understand like what is a piece of laundry? How do I know what I'm looking at? So I started focusing in grad school on that task of basically how do we understand the world in 3D? And most traditional methods uh, that the computer vision community used back then was very 2D focused. It is the world is a grid of pixels of different colors. Let's see what we can understand from that. But in order to make robots work, you kind of need to have something that can move around in a 3D world and not bump into things. And that led me to focus pretty hard in grad school on 3D understanding, 3D perception. A few years into this process, new hardware started coming out. The Microsoft Kinect was kind of a big splash around 2011, 2012, promising that we would actually have easy-to-use hardware that could give us 3D data, the kind of thing that we would have mounted on a robot in a lab. And that led me and my co-founders to think, what if we started a company in this space? What if we tried to take commodified hardware that everyone has already, namely the mobile phone in your pocket, And build a company that uses all the technology we came up with for robotics to power actual human things that they can use today rather than waiting for a half-million-dollar robot to be available on the market. So 
basically, we went from working on high-profile robots to working on smartphone apps, trying to make technology that let people image and understand the world in 3D by walking around it with a camera. And as newer and newer sensors come out, like the LiDAR sensor on the iPhone, the stereo cameras, our company has just kind of grown and grown. You know, there's a few things there that I want to unpack that I, I really love that you shared, Stephen. I mean, first, the Microsoft Connect. I remember owning the Xbox 360 and having a Connect, and it was really fun in these early days to be able to move around and, and see myself on the screen. This was like pre-Oculus days, right? And it was so, so fascinating. Yeah, yeah, very pre-Oculus. And I think when the Connect came out, many people saw it as a video game tool, right? Like it tracks your pose in 3D and you can use it to dance or control a character. But the research world, at least for quite a few years, started using it everywhere. We had drones with Kinects mounted to them. I had robots with Kinects mounted on their head because it was this really inexpensive piece of hardware that gives you 3D data and images together. And it was kind of a game changer in the world of research in a way that I'm not sure if everyday people who working in robotics realize just how much of a wave it made. You know, and I remember that Connect originally was an Israeli company, right? Until Microsoft partnered with them with a joint venture to bring that technology to market. So it was really interesting to see that. And of course, then we saw the Connect uh, lookalikes come out where, you know, Nintendo came out with their own version for the Wii and other companies since then. And of course, that's given rise now fast forward to where we are in 2021, where we have uh, our enlightened futurist, uh, Elon Musk, coming out with the Tesla humanoid, right? We, we saw that uh, just a few months ago talking about, of course, it was a human in a costume pretending to be a robot. But, you know, I think back to all these videos I've seen on, on YouTube about Boston Dynamics and these parkour robots. And to the example that you gave us earlier, Stephen, that they're thinking in 2D, but they're not understanding the context of the world. And and I see these videos now of robots doing somersaults and navigating a course. And I start to think, have we made that much progress in the last decade? Yeah. And so as a roboticist, I have to be a little bit of a healthy skeptic. It's just I remember 10 years ago when we were asked in interviews, how soon will we have robots in the house doing chores? We said pessimistically five years. And that was 10 years ago. And I don't have a robot in my house. I do think Technology has come a very long way. I think the rise of deep learning, especially, people have learned how to apply that to multiple sensor streams. And some of this stuff, I think, is very exciting and very real. Self-driving cars really are on the road, right, being used every day. Boston Dynamics has so many interesting demos that they show where the robot must be reasoning in 3D with some kind of spatial awareness. And I think of drone companies, uh, Skydio comes to mind as an exciting one, where they have drones that are really, really clever at being able to follow you, film you, and avoid obstacles at the same time. So I think the hype is real to an extent. I think we are getting to the point where robots can understand the world in 3D. What is tough is when what the robot has to do isn't just interact with itself, like walk around and not hit things, but delicately interact with the world in some way, understand this is this model of car and there's a little scuff on the paint right here or uh, this is a piece of clothing this is a t-shirt that is this large and if i gently lift it up and spread it like this i'll be able to fold it i think that kind of really delicate reasoning is still pretty far out 
And I wonder, are we really just solving for the TikTok generation? Or are we solving for good use cases to make humanity in the world a better place? You know, I think about one of our portfolio companies at Data Frame Ventures is Embodied. And Embodied uh, created Moxie, which was the time invention of 2020. Basically, this little robot that could go into hospitals and kids' rooms. And if you think about it, it's really simple, right? It's a robot on wheels and, you know, it's connected to the cloud and it has an, an OLED display and, and the robot gives different emotions and moves around, you know, and it, it can actually in real time take the input that the child shares and give back some feedback. You know, I'm happy, I'm sad, or, or a lot of really interesting cases. So they're starting to get there, but I like your skepticism there, Stephen. I don't know if Elon's dancing humanoid robot is just there today. And, you know, I don't know if I want to place a long bet. Will it be there in 2025, 2030, 2050? But I was talking to my dad about this a couple weeks ago, and I, and I said, Dad, you know, are you ready to live in the age of the Jetsons? And my dad said, David, I've been waiting to do this since the 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a thing, especially in the world of robotics, we've been dealing with forever, is any demo that we make is not just juxtaposed against the state of the art. It's juxtaposed against, you know, Terminator, against things that people have been seeing in popular entertainment for decades. And that gap, especially between what people want their technology to be able to do, what movies have kind of taught them it can, and the real world is pretty strong. But I, I do think there are great applications, to your point, uh, when you talk about embodied, that we can use today. And those kind of key in on an important aspect, which is you don't need to make a technology solve everything perfectly. You need to understand its limitations and have it interact with people to do the rest. So in this case, having a robot that drives around interacts with children, displays things, assesses emotions. That's great, right? And I imagine when they built that, they came up with lots of things on top of the pure robotics to make that be a great user experience. Mm. And that makes me really excited when we think about technology interacting with the human element rather than just having perfect automation, having a Terminator running around. That's right. And one thing that I'd like to dissect further that you shared in that example here, which was that the technology needs to be better, but not perfect, right? It's looking to do something better. And, you know, one of these portfolio companies that we're also excited to invest in is Hyperspec AI I'm out of San Francisco. And, and they're actually taking this self-driving approach of we are going to work with the maps. And traditionally, maps are not mapped very well, right? Typically, you know, when you're using LiDAR and, and the 3D technology, you might only get like a 5% scenario of being mapped because of all the miles and, and the amount of data required. And they're augmenting that with synthetic data and edge computing and other devices. So I'm sure you have a strong opinion on this, you know, when you're thinking about the hardware and the software, there is a gap. The gap might be the data gap. The gap may be a theory and practice gap. Can you start unpacking for the audience a little bit about that gap that we're hearing in these scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this was one of the reasons that I was excited to take a, quote, leave of absence from academia that has lasted eight years and counting and go into the industry is because it did seem like there was a large gap between theory and practice. 
basically in the academic world, when you have to publish, then you need to evaluate on a data set of some sort. And typically that means someone in a lab collects a ton of photos or they aggregate, you know, photos from Google or something and they run on those data sets. So you want to see how well your algorithm can detect people. You run it on a data set of 10 million images of people. You see that it works 98% of the time and you say, we've solved people detection. It's it. But as you point out, data is very, very important. And particularly when you have to solve a problem in the real world, I think there's a huge gap between the kind of data we tend to collect for academic purposes and the kind of data that would be required to really solve something in practice. You mentioned self-driving cars, and I think that is a key point to focus on is Self-driving cars, the companies that have historically done very well, historically Waymo at least, was pretty far out in front. I think today that's a bit more in question. But the reason they were is because Google had mapped so much of the country in 3D already. They had just so much data that they had painstakingly collected. And now as we see more clever ways to kind of augment that, to share data sets and make it so the rest of the world can catch up, I think it's really exciting. Because one key thing that when we think about deep learning and computer vision, we're often, again, thinking about that pixel space, about a flat 2D image looking for a square that looks vaguely stop sign-like or looks very vaguely car-like. And in practice, when you're actually moving around in the world, whether you're a robot or a person holding a cell phone or a self-driving car, what you're really seeing are so many varied angles of a thing. You're seeing a combination of the sun shining on the world and reflections on the windshield of a vehicle and how it looks as it turns slightly. And all that kind of nuance is really difficult to reason about if you limit yourself to 2D. So I'm very excited about this world of collecting 3D data sets and teaching our algorithms to kind of learn more in that space instead. Sounds like that space does include a lot of deep convolution neural nets, perhaps things around 3D CNNs and even more advanced than that. Yeah, absolutely. One recent development that has gotten me pretty excited in the academic world is last year, a few friends of ours, including Ben Mildenhall, published a paper in CVPR called NERF for Neural Radiance Fields for View Synthesis. And I'm not sure how much this has crept into, you know, the industry culture outside of pure academia, but in academia, it's been huge. Uh, We see Google research, Facebook research, everyone is suddenly focused on how do we represent the world in 3D? How do we represent 3D space with neural networks? And I would hazard a guess that the reason this is happening is because people are realizing If we can compactly understand the world in 3D, that is going to be a really, really, really rich data set to reason about as opposed to the 2D photos that deep CNNs have kind of been brought up using up till now. And, you know, thinking about this uh, research, right, NERF was presented at ECCV 2020, right? And uh, NERF, as you mentioned, it's working with this data in real time in a 3D capacity. And I, I think to a lot of the methods we've seen today. It's been mostly 2D. What I wonder is how much of this new research that everyone's diving into a NERF, these neural radiance fields, how much of this is going to be real time versus like batch and and being brought to light later on? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. And I think it goes back to one of those gaps between theory and practice. In the academic world, one thing that often frustrated me is a paper would say, hey, 
we achieved state-of-the-art in 3D understanding. We can understand the shape of a room from five photos, or we've built something that can track the distance between two photos to figure out how the camera moved. And then in a little asterisk at the end of the paper, it would say, this takes three hours to run on a pair of photos, which when you think about an actual application, that would never work in practice. What excites me I can't totally speak for the large corporations, but I hazard a guess they are also thinking this way, is a lot of these technologies are designed to be very rapidly run, uh, to be able to be optimized on the edge. I know here at Fusion, uh, we've been working very hard at similar techniques. We had a paper come out a couple years ago called LLFF that was kind of a nerf precursor of sorts. And there we worked on real-time rendering for that exact reason, because everything we do, we want to be able to fit in the palm of your hand. So I think given a couple of years, we are going to see a lot of companies come out with near real-time versions of this. Now optimizing that for mobile, especially for low-end devices, that is a never-ending journey. But I think we're going to see a lot of progress there. And it sounds like the challenge for the mobile devices is, would you say it's, is it storage? Is it compute? Is it the battery, the cost? Of course, when we have the big machines, the big tech companies that are backed, right, with the large GPU and TPU server farms, everything's possible. But on a device, that takes a lot of effort, right? Uh, yeah, so a lot goes into optimizing things for mobile. And there are quite a few challenges. One of them right off the bat is you have so many different versions of devices to support in the wild. You think of all the flavors of Android, all the different types of hardware you have to support, and each one has different special ways that it wants to reason, especially about images. But beyond that, mobile phones just give you a lot of constraints. As you mentioned, CPU and battery are really heavy ones. For Apple, at least, if you go above a certain level of CPU, the OS will just kill your application. They won't really tell you why. It's just if you use too much, they decide you aren't worth it. Because on mobile, your application might be one of 30 that is running at the same time. Memory is another big issue on mobile phones to work around. There's way less memory for us to work with than in a traditional computer. And then battery life, kind of the the bargain we always have to strike is the more cool things we port to mobile, you know, the more intelligent we want our system to be, inevitably the more battery that is going to drain. So if we have someone who is going to be out in the field for eight hours a day walking around cars on an auction, we can't drain 20% of the battery every time they image a vehicle. So there's a lot of things that we have to worry about here in order to make mobile actually work in practice. And most of that comes down to some really clever low-level optimizations, taking something that would be really heavy compute and approximating it with something a little bit lighter, and then other kind of tricks of the trade to make sure that we're not doing any unnecessary computation. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And so it sounds like there's bridging the gap of divide, not only theory and practice, but also making sure that we have a good user experience. And that user experience can be also bridging this divide with the performance. You call it the implementation detail. Can you speak more about that to our audience? Yeah, definitely. So I think 
again, these things that are listed as implementation details, as if an engineer will solve it eventually, and they aren't interesting enough for a person to write a paper about. So much of that is the difference between a successful product and a non-successful product. If I have a computer vision algorithm, and it requires someone to upload a video to the internet and wait for me to do processing and then download, that may not work for 90% of the population, for people who aren't in LTE networks, for people who are in 3G and don't have a chance to upload. So a lot of what we do really goes into how do we make an ideal user experience? And that means push whatever we can to the edge so we never leave people waiting due to a lack of connectivity, and then gracefully handling errors and other issues like that. One thing that I'm quite passionate about in this space is the idea of what do we do when our AI fails? You know, very few things are 100% accurate. We can look at things like QR code readers, one of the most solved AI problems that we have. And still, we've all been in situations where we point our phone at a digital menu, and it doesn't work. For whatever combination of reasons, we're in the 0.1% where it failed. Now, how do we handle those situations? A poor user experience is one that tells someone to just keep pointing and hope that eventually it will work. But most successful implementations of AI find a way to kind of wrap this uncertainty in a user experience that feels predictable and intuitive. Things that provide fallbacks, like, hey, I didn't catch that. Can you type this number by hand instead? Or, hey, I feel like I didn't fully understand when you walked around that vehicle. It would help me a lot if you went back to this part and took a photo. And so a lot of what we do now uh, at Cox Automotive and just more broadly in the AI world is reasoning about how do we take things that are not 100% accurate and wrap them in a pleasant user experience that makes it accelerate the... Uh, the person who is working with you. Basically, how do we make sure even when it isn't perfect, it is still providing value to the end user? And I think that's a very interesting challenge in the world of AI, is wrapping things that are not always going to be perfect into a layer that feels intuitive and easy to use for people. It's building an AI augmented experience or a human augmented experience. I can completely relate to that scenario, Stephen. I live in New York City and I take City Bike. City Bike is a rideshare bike system in the city of New York City proper. It's owned by Lyft and Lyft to improve the experience has put QR codes on all the city bikes so you can scan and undock and dock your bikes. But sometimes the QR codes don't work and so they actually have a separate serial number on the bike that you can grab that and type that into your phone. And if they don't get the scan, they make it pretty clear. You can click a button, type it in so that you're not left hanging. So it sounds to me that I didn't know that until you just shared, but that this was Lyft's uh, intuitive AI workaround. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why some of the work in AI that most excites me, when we move from these mostly solved problems like QR codes, where the edge case can only happen, you know, 1% of the time, into the world of AI, where we're usually looking at things that are 80% accurate, 85% accurate. I'm really interested in people that have found a way to make AI be seen as kind of a, a tool that expedites the productivity of an end user and provides graceful handling when it doesn't work. A very recent example I watched was uh, my friends over at OpenAI we're showcasing this new system, Codex, that is meant to do just that. It's a deep network that writes software. So a very exciting idea. You give it a command, like, I want to make a game that moves a cursor 10 pixels to the right, and it outputs code. 
but it also lets you talk to it after and kind of refine it because they've realized our network will not be 100% accurate. If we want people to use this, we need to let them be able to inspect and kind of talk, modify over time, say, oh, that didn't quite work. Let me tweak this parameter here. And things like that that are more like smart autocomplete, things that are an AI will do the bulk of the work to save you time. You know, scanning a QR code is faster than typing a serial number. But if you don't still provide that serial number at the end, the way for the person to intervene and feel that they have control, then I think it's very difficult to make a product that will satisfy end users. Yeah, I think so. And even with, as you just mentioned, the OpenAI Codex, it's so fascinating. I remember when I was running hackathons about five years ago for Angel Hack, and we would see some solutions where you'd see these high school and college kids talk into the audio, which would transcribe these triggers or inputs that would then make the background yellow or add text in red, right? We had these very simple use cases to see now they've evolved with this open AI codex where you could build an entire dynamic website and have the code available. And, you know, will it still be perfect in all scenarios? Not necessarily, but it could be good enough, especially for prototyping POCs and getting the point across. Absolutely. And I think where we see computer vision having been effective today is use cases like that. You think about when we use Zoom or Teams or something, and we have this little button that lets us blur our background. We all know it doesn't work perfectly, but it solves a problem for a lot of people. And it's in a domain where we have a bit of flexibility, where it doesn't need to be perfect to provide value to us. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the past, especially at the beginning of the deep learning revolution, you know, in the last decade, we would see companies that would claim to do perfect understanding or point your phone at a thing and figure out how much it costs or tell me everything that is in the scene. And most of the time, those companies don't seem to have worked too well because they failed to see this idea of providing incremental value on the way to perfection. And I think what we're really seeing now is technology getting better and better because we found these ways to provide value to the end user before we hit 100% accuracy. Now, Stephen, I know you've taken an approach, as you've been describing here, of perhaps building a system that brings humans and machines together. We can call that approach a hybrid approach to AI and these human-driven processes. It sounds like the QR code example was one of those. Even this OpenAI codex could be one. Can you speak to us more about the hybrid approach to AI and human-driven processes? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I can speak to a personal example, which is uh, Fusion at Cox Automotive. One of the challenges that we are trying to solve is how do you make vehicle inspections more reliable? Today, people basically, if you've ever gone to a rental shop, for instance, you've had this experience where you're returning a car, they have you walk around it with this diagram and by hand draw a little X next to every scratch, every dent, everything you've seen that could be wrong. And you always have this kind of intuition that there must be a better way to do this. This feels inherently fragile because it's relying so much on kind of me eyeballing and hoping I don't miss anything. So with Cox, we've been working on automated condition report generation where people walk around a car with a cell phone and use that to get a 3D image of the vehicle that can then be assessed for damages. But as we mentioned before, hybrid approaches are key. So we would never want to build a system that just goes 100% trust automation, the end. What we're doing instead is building tools that will make the lives of people who actually do the inspection process easier, kind of pre-populating the sorts of damages that they would be able to find. And so what we try to do, again, much like Smart Autocomplete, is do things that help 
help you catch things you might have missed. Let the AI help you, but ultimately keep the human expert in the loop as well. Thinking about human experts in the loop, why is it so critical to keep humans in the loop? I know for me and many of the listeners in the show, we believe in augmenting humans. We believe in a human-first society augmented by AI. What's your perspective having worked with the machines, worked with the software on why it's important to keep humans in the loop? Yeah, well, I think it's critical for a few reasons. One is just pragmatic. We all know with AI, the challenge is it works until the moment it doesn't. It works until it hits an edge case that it has never seen before. And for those kinds of situations, that is when human expertise is really so key to make sure that you have people involved in the process. I think it's also important to build trust in any kind of technology that you develop. Generally, if someone told me we have a system that is just a black box where I'm going to hand it a picture and it is going to give me a dollar value back, I would feel very distrustful of that because there are so many decades of industry experience that go into deciding how these technologies work. I also feel just on a moral level, uh, it's important for us to build technology that kind of makes the lives of everyday people better rather than trying to build technology that just becomes a kind of archaic system. So I think the human element is good just for the practical reason of experts know so many things that we couldn't possibly know, and they also build trust to the end user to keep them there. But I also think it's just important as we grow technology to make sure that we're doing it in partnership with people rather than in opposition to them. I really like that, especially about the partnership. And you know, thinking about a partnership, as you mentioned, Fusion was acquired by Cox Automotives. Uh, how's the experience been for you being an entrepreneur and now turned to an intrapreneur? Oh, it, it's been great. And I think it really does mirror that idea of the gap between theory and practice. You know, I left grad school because I wanted to try building products in the real world. And when you become an entrepreneur, compared to writing a research paper, that is the real world. But really, you're building technology and you're throwing it out in the ether and you're hoping that you find people who will use it. Comparing that to this new entrepreneurial experience, where all of a sudden the people are there guaranteed. There are so many people with concrete needs they need to solve today and clear areas that we can provide value to them. And for me, as someone who cares so much more about building systems that work than necessarily having just a theoretical breakthrough, it's been really fun to see how can we apply cutting-edge AI techniques to solve very real, very immediate problems in you know, every state in the country. Uh, there's so many people using our technology today in ways that as an entrepreneur in the startup world, I never really would have anticipated. So I love the new challenge of seeing how do we fit technology to help augment existing processes. And thinking about as the technology is evolving, there's always the, the classic question about hype versus reality. And you know, now in 2021, there's been a lot of progress. What are some of the progress you've seen, uh, especially in your neighborhood, that you've seen in the last five, six years? Yeah, so I think the most clear one has been self-driving cars. I've joked before that self-driving cars were two years around the corner every year for the last decade. That was always the line, was that they're coming any day now they're coming. And now we finally are to a point where I can't step outside for a cup of coffee without seeing a Waymo or cruise automation vehicle drive by. Uh, we see Teslas with autopilot being used in the wild as well. So we do see things that are more real now than they used to be. But in general, I think the successful technologies are the ones that find more subtle ways to integrate themselves. You think about things like Snapchat filters, right? They're live, 
they're assessing the world. They're using really cool tech under the hood, but the stakes are a little lower. In areas where we want high stakes performance, it's been really nice to see how hardware has evolved. The dream when we started Fusion was the Kinect is coming. When is new hardware going to come to cell phones? And that dream has finally happened. Your newest iPhone has a LiDAR sensor in the back of it. We also have technologies like ARKit and ARCore that lets people finally do what, as a grad student, I wished I could do, which is reason about the 3D world without being an expert in 3D. So I think, especially over the next few years, we're going to see more technology that really leverages these real-world constraints that thinks about the world as 3D rather than as pixels. So those things get me very excited. I'm also a bit of a film nerd, so I love how all of these can relate to the entertainment industry. And we've seen really cool things happening in markerless motion capture, in the ability to kind of scan a person in 3D and then render scenes around them. When you think about like the Cloverfield movie, for instance, how they have a shaky camera and a monster that is clearly digitally added in post, that comes from this kind of understanding of the world in 3D. And there, the last few years, technology has really become commodified, making it easier for amateurs to do this as well. So I find that really exciting. And isn't it amazing to see how LiDAR has also come of age? I mean, did anyone expect that we would be having LiDAR sensors on the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13? We saw it on Teslas, right? But to get it on these small devices is quite incredible. Exactly. The line used to be, you need LiDAR to do self-driving cars and LiDAR will cost you $100,000. Therefore, self-driving cars will not happen. Um, and now we have this commodified LiDAR sensors. It, it is really amazing the, the progress that hardware has made. And for our audience who's listening, I was making a joke there before. Tesla does not use LiDAR technology. <laughs> so there is a different technology there, but some self-driving does have LiDAR, some doesn't, right? Just as we see many different AI algorithms, there's different approaches for seeing the 3D environment around us. And Stephen, if you can tease for our audience from what you saw to where we are to what's coming, what's exciting you about you know, the next two years around the corner, so to speak? Definitely. So in the research world, I'm really excited about this push towards 3D representations. Uh, Nerf and neural rendering is great. I think if I had a hunch, what that is leading towards is going to be a kind of explosion of the use of 3D for solving practical applications. I think we are finally going to see the dream of a 3D data set being used rather than purely 2D. And that should lead to a lot of real-time experiences that were hard to build before. In the industry, I do finally feel that self-driving cars really are around the corner. So that excites me after so long of being you know, told that it was coming. It finally seems like the technology is really starting to measure up with that. And just in general, I'm excited to see what people can do with having these advanced technologies in the palm of their hand. I think we're going to see a lot more kind of real-time understanding, a lot more 3D reconstruction techniques being used to build cool experiences for people, and hopefully finally see robots that can navigate the world in an intuitive way. I am ready to have my Tesla humanoid, so perhaps that will be here, not necessarily in the next two years, but in the next two years after the two years after the two years. Yeah, we'll be pessimistic and say five. That's the five is infinity in technology terms. Perfect. Well, I'm super excited for that. And Stephen, it's been such a pleasure. For the audience, Stephen Miller, the co-founder and senior vice president of engineering at Fusion, a Cox Automotives company. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. 
Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.